0: of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at Today's scripture is John 16, 32 to 33. Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's pray. God, we come before you and we, we just pause and we soak up those words that you have overcome the world. So Lord, we thank you for that reality this morning. Thank you that we can preach into that reality, live into that reality, and exist as pilgrims in this world through your son, Jesus. In this I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Heath. I am part of the team here. And you may be asking yourself, you know, did I draw the long straw or the short straw to be the one that stayed behind from the men's retreat to speak to you this morning? So I'll let you be the judge after you hear me speak. Anyway, uh, it's a joy to be here. It's wonderful uh, that you can come out on this really foggy day. Uh, so it's, 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 it's been fun. I was uh, Friday night and Saturday at the men's retreat for a little bit. And it was really amazing. And I had too much testosterone, so I had to leave. So... In Psalm 137, before this gets off the rails, we'll start. In Psalm 137, we read these words. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willow trees there we hung our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs. And our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, Blessed shall he who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he who takes the little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Thankfully, I'm not preaching the whole sermon on that. This is a visceral psalm. This is a psalm of lament, a psalm of horror, of, of people taken into captivity, and they cannot praise, they cannot worship their God because they're stuck as slaves. In his compelling book, An Ethic for Christians and Other Aliens in a Strange Land, lawyer, social rights activist, lay theologian, un, kind of an uncommon guy, William Stringfellow, upon interacting with this particular psalm, he says these words. How can human beings live in a war hope in the presence of, of the moral reality of death or the, the, the reality, like the extant, the actual reality of death? How can we act humanly in the midst of the fall? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? See, this guy, he's, he's an American man, and he's writing at the height of the Vietnam War. So 1973, yep, the year I was born, this man pens these words. How do we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? So his question here, Reflecting on one Psalm 137, interacting with the horrors of war, the Vietnam War, his interacting with their lament, the Jewish lament, and the lament of his own country at war. His question this morning becomes our question this morning. Christ City, how do we approach the dawn of 2024? living in Vancouver, how do we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? How do we act humanly, that is truly, in the midst of brokenness and fallenness? How do we have hope, Christ City? How do we have hope in the midst of this omnipresent reality called death? Christ City, how do we live as Christians and not be formed by the realities of this world. And this is the whole focus behind our sermon series of you know formation in the gospel, counterformation in the gospel rather than that of the world. So our answer this morning, um, quite cheekily, is a 21st century pilgrim's progress, kind of a resistance movement, as you, you know, as I might say. So, what does it actually mean to be an exile? Because we haven't been carried off into slavery. What is a pilgrim, right? Aren't those those fancy 17th century, like, colonizers who had stupid hats with belt buckles on them? You know, aren't these the guys that ate turkey for the first time? So hold that thought in your mind right there. And we're going to, typically in a Heath way, look at it from another angle. Now, I've been watching this crazy show called Alone. I don't know if anybody has ever watched it, but it's pretty cool. It's, a, it's an outdoor survival show. You know, you got one person... One person with his or her chosen gear, you're placed in a remote, bitter, horrible, like difficult place. Usually it's Canada. You know, there's a joke. I always tell my American friends, you know, and, you know, you guys call it survival. We just call it camping. Anyway, you've got this one person trying to last longer than all of the other competitors. And they're alone. They don't know that the other competitors are there or where they're at or whether they've even tapped out. And every time I watch this stupid show, every time I am amazed, I am staggered at the level of unpreparedness. Now, I realize I say this from the comfort of the popcorn on my couch. Yet somehow, coming face-to-face with the limitations of a harsh environment, these people are physically, mentally, emotionally wholly unprepared for the task of survival, ill-equipped, For whatever this ecosystem throws at them. And one by one, they tap out of the journey. Uh, You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out the parallel that I'm going to make here. Christ City, we possess all of the bushcraft knowledge that we need in faith. In fact, we actually have access to more knowledge than any other generation before us. Yet the task of survival, this journey amidst the environment of our culture, Man, we're barely treading water. How many feel like they're barely treading water this morning? Yeah. This cultural air that we breathe is killing us. We possess all the knowledge, all the supposed ways of survival, all the gear. In fact, we have better gear than our forefathers. But we're unpracticed, unprepared, feebly ill-equipped for the job. And when the journey outstrips our knowledge, we collapse physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And the lure, oh, the lure is to just tap out, isn't it? Christ City, we lack the fortitude and the connection to Jesus, and by default, we are found wanting. We're curled up in the fetal position on the side of this journey towards the celestial city, Zion. I'm going to overstate it this way. You know, some of us have got our little John Mark Comer books. We've got 30 tips and tricks on how to be a better Christian, how to be silent, how to have the robust spiritual life. We read about ways to create discipline and a rule of life and all these fancy things, but we don't put them into practice. We read about it. We fill our head... And we're still amazed when we find ourselves wanting. We wonder why we lack discipline. We tap out. We tap out and we wonder, is this all that there is? And we find ourselves just like the dudes sitting by the river in Babylon in Psalm 137 going, what the heck just happened? That's our problem, Christ City. Thankfully, weirdly, this is a problem that has endured since there has been Christians and about 350 years ago this gives me great comfort an ordinary Christian a man who was a preacher not credentialed he was an ordinary preacher and he is jailed 12 years for his faith for preaching the gospel and leading a church and his name was John Bunyan and while he was in jail for his faith he wrote this book called the pilgrim's progress how many of you have heard of the pilgrim's progress yeah At one point outside of the Bible, it was the most, it was like the greatest selling book outside of the Bible. So just like Christian, the protagonist in John Bunyan's story, we find ourselves here. Now, at the end of this valley was another called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. And Christian must need go through it because the way to the celestial city lay through the midst of it. To go back is nothing but death. To go forward is fear of death and life everlasting beyond it. I will yet go forward. It is always hard to see the purpose in wilderness wanderings until after they are over. So Christ City, how do we in our day, in our time, walk towards this celestial city? So our outline this morning will help us get there. It's threefold. First one is the power of the city of destruction. That's going to be a fun one. Second point is Zion and the celestial city, and the defeat of death. And our third point is a a pilgrim's progress. In other words, a resistance to the land of death. So the power of death, the defeat of death, and our resistance in death. So, see our journey today is like that of Christian, the protagonist in Bunyan's story, and it begins in the city of Babylon. It begins for us allegorized as the city of destruction, So John Bunyan says, it's Evangelist, the guy that's speaking to Christian, our protagonist. He says, you dwell, he said, in the city of destruction, the place also where I was born. I see it to be so. And dying there, sooner or later, you will sink lower than the grave into a place that burns with fire and brimstone. Be content, good neighbors, and go along with me. So like being dropped off in the middle of nowhere, hoping to survive, if we do not know the environment in which we find ourselves... We sink lower than the grave and we will surely die. And to understand our position and our identity as a pilgrim, we need to know where we are. We need to come face to face with Babylon and the power of death. Babylon as a theme, can be traced throughout the entirety of the scriptures. Uh, But in Revelation 18, we have this weird thing that happens. It's a celebration of the fall of Babylon. And we see a glimpse in this fall and the celebration of this fall to see how powerful, how all-encompassing, and how pervasive Babylon is. So, Revelation 18, starting at verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Alas, alas, for the great city where all, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid to waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. For God has given judgment for you against her. Now, I'd love to pull on that string for a long time. But Stringfellow, the, the man that I quoted earlier, he says this here. He says, the principle, the Babylon parable here in the book of Revelation ascribes death as the moral, the normal principle reality, which rules nations, all other principalities, and powers of this world. Death domineers these creatures. Death assumes for the principalities the office or role of God. Death permeates the whole of the existence of the principalities. Death is institutionalized, indefinite, undefined, unidentifiable forms in particular nations in specific circumstances. Simultaneously, death is incarnate in the ethos of every nation, embodied in the tradition and aims of all the other nations and powers. Let's take a breather, but I'm going to continue. Death is, apart from God, the greatest moral power in the world, outlasting and subduing all other powers, no matter how marvelous they may seem for the time being. This means, theologically speaking, that the object of allegiance and servitude, the real idol, secreted within all idolatries, the power above all principalities and powers, the idol of all idols, is death. After all is said and done, apart from God himself, death is the only extant moral power living in this world. Whew, that's a mouthful isn't it? Now, I read this a few weeks back, actually like a month ago or so, and I was stopped dead in my tracks, and I haven't been actually able to get around this, this point. We all know it to be true, but I've never seen it so starkly portrayed from a man who is writing at the height of the Vietnam War and the struggle with race riots in America. That's quite profound. And I don't think Stringfellow is even overstating his point or even exaggerating when he says this. Carl Sagan even would agree with him his quote is extinction is the rule survival is the exception so we need to grapple with the true horror that this is and we need to understand that the humans are bound to this power just like gravity if I drop you know something it will fall we're caught in that grip we need to understand that it's the thing that we can't overcome can we without God it is death that wins Babylon in the Bible represents a society of death. The idol of all idols, death is the city of destruction that John Bunyan writes about. It's the city from which we need to escape. It is this singular reality that Paul, speaking... In, to a church, a struggling church in Rome. Rome was like the height of power at the time. Rome represented everything that Babylon was. And Paul writes to this fledgling little church in Romans 6, 23, the first This is what he says. For the wages of sin is what? Death. See, I don't think I really need to overstate how heinous sin is but we do. Our involvement, our, our, our sin is worship to Babylon. You see, in the society of, of death, sin is political power. In the city of Babylon, sin is the currency. So whether we're posting on our social media feeds or whether you're walking alongside of a friend who chooses maid, whether it's watching the horrors of the war in the Middle East and Ukraine, or it's advocating for affordable housing. Whether it's sitting with my friend, listening to have him tell me stories of survival as a kid in a residential school, or it's sitting at the casino. From finance to family, everywhere we look, we see the implications of death everywhere. We see human life sacrificed for the demonic. And by default, this is the city that we're born into. This is the city that we find ourselves as residents. This is the city, and it's our sin, and, and it's our brokenness, and we're complicit in this city. We're complicit in its politics of sin and the economy of sin and the city of destruction. So as we move to our second point, my singular focus, the this, this single thing I want you to remember is that however equipped in our journey, whether we find ourselves equipped or ill-equipped, whatever it is, If we remain in Babylon as a resident, we will surely die. That's all I wanted to say in point one. If we stay put, we die. We die. So let's go back to our question that I started at the beginning of this journey. How can human beings live in hope in the presence of the moral reality of death? How can we act humanly in the midst of the fall? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Christ city, where is this hope? Where is this hope? So if we look in the biblical narratives, I said, we just don't see Babylon, but we actually see another city. We see a city of Jerusalem. And we've got this battle back and forth, this, this interplay all the way through the biblical narratives. Stringfellow says, two societies are prominent in the biblical witness. There is Babylon, but there's also Jerusalem. Babylon is the city of death. Jerusalem is the city of salvation. Babylon, the dominion of alienation. Babel, slavery, war. Jerusalem, the community of reconciliation. Sanity, freedom, peace. Babylon, the harlot. Jerusalem, the bride of God. Babylon, the realm of demons and foul spirits. Jerusalem, the dwelling place in which all creatures are fulfilled. Babylon, an abomination to the Lord. And Jerusalem, the holy nation. Babylon doomed, as we saw. And Jerusalem redeemed. Our hope, Christ city. How we live humanly in the midst of the fall is found in Bunyan's celestial city. Jerusalem, the city of salvation, the community of reconciliation, the bride of God, the place of fulfillment, Jerusalem, the redeemed. In Revelation 18, we've seen the celebration, we've seen the fall of this destructive city. But if you turn with me to Revelation chapter 21, we see the hope, we see the joy, we see something so profound that I'm staggered every time I read it. Revelation 21, starting at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven was the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the road saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He dwells with them and he will be and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And, the, and he who seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. It is done, Christ's city. Babylon is defeated. Death shall be no more. It is done. Now you might be sitting there thinking, okay, Heath, so what? So what? Who cares? So what? What? You still haven't told me how I put the belt buckle on the hat yet. Come on. Death still has power right here and right now, Heath. So what? Why did I care? Why do I care? We must seriously grapple with this. How does one journey from death to life? If this supposed defeat of Babylon is in some sort of twisted, weird, sort of ethereal, celestial, eternal city and future, how does this help me today? How does this help me today, right now? What's my motivation for not tapping out in the wilderness? How do I survive this hostile land when I feel so ill-equipped? How do I go on? How can I actually be a pilgrim, burdened, carrying the weights of the still-present power of Babylon in this world, still engaged in its politics and its economy? How do I, as a traveler in a strange and perilous land, fraught with danger, headed toward this city, this future Jerusalem, how do I look to this distant dwelling place of God? How do I say, I have hope? Because, Heath, in the words of Ted Lasso, you know, it's the hope that kills you. Come on, Heath. How can human beings live in this hope? In the presence of the moral reality of death. How can we act humanly in the midst of the fall? How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange place? How does this help me now? We can have hope, Christ City. Why? Because we can look to the Alpha and Omega. Which really means everything from the very beginning before time itself to the very end where time doesn't exist. Everything. This is the only reality that has the power to not only create life, but also it has the power to recreate life and dispel the power of death. And that Alpha and Omega is Jesus. Gold star, if you guessed that. So turn with me to our text this morning. And you're thinking, wow, it took him 20 minutes to get to his text. Okay. All that I have said so far is to get to this point. Turn with us. John chapter 16. Jesus is about to die, and he talks to his followers and says, Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and I and you, and will leave me alone, rather. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. See, this Jesus, he walks this road of death before us. He traverses the politics and economy of sin and is faithful. He is executed by the extant power of Babylon, And he overcomes. He makes all things new. He is the Alpha and Omega. In him, it is done. And it is in Jesus. If we place our lives in him, it's in him that makes us aliens, strangers, sojourners, exiles, pilgrims in a strange land. He's the belt buckle on our hat. You knew that was coming. He makes us new. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. After Jesus says these words, his disciples, some of them betray him. Some of them don't stick with him. They are scattered. All of them are scattered. He is beaten. He's mocked. He's hung on a cross. He dies. He receives all the fury, all the violence, all the death that Babylon has to offer, and in John 19, starting in verse 28, we, we read this. After this, Jesus, knowing that it was all, all was now finished, he said, to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar filled of sour wine stood there, and they put a sponge filled with sour wine in the hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished, Christ's city. So if you've walked in here this morning feeling settled in Babylon, mired in death, embroiled in tribulation, broken, addicted, stuck, enslaved in the politics and the economy of the sin of destruction, if you're unable to see past your present circumstances this morning, know this morning that you don't have to stay there. Ted Lasso was a liar. The hope doesn't have to kill you. You can be set free You can look forward to this new Jerusalem in real hope that it is done. And why is this? Because to look forward, we look back to the cross where Jesus says it's finished. To look forward to it being done, we realize it's finished. You can be set free by looking back to look forward. Three days later, Jesus is raised from the dead, and he declares that it's done. The moral authority of death is destroyed. It's defeated. Our life, therefore, set free, our life as pilgrims, we must look back to look forward. It's this reality that Paul declares to a church in Corinth that we looked at last year, to this church in Corinth struggling with what it means to deal with Babylon in the midst of of having faith. Paul says to them this in 1 Corinthians 15, 54. It says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, in other words, resurrection, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, why? Who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, if you're stuck If you are stuck, surrender your life to the very one who is overcome. This morning, come, take my hand as a fellow traveler on this road. Journey with me, with this community to a new Jerusalem. So how can we live in hope in the presence of the moral reality of death? How can we act humanly in the midst of the fall? How shall we sing a song, the Lord's song, in a strange land? See, death may reign. Death may reign in this strange land. But through Jesus, we are freed from its bondage. By his resurrection, we are emancipated from the power of death. Let that sink in a bit. The only thing that really matters is to live in Christ instead of death. The only thing that matters is to live in Christ instead of death. In Jesus, we can hope. Through Jesus' power, then, we can actually act humanly in the midst of the fall. And it is to Jesus that we can sing a song of joy in a strange land. This is what it means to be a pilgrim on the road to the celestial city, as John Bunyan wrote in a jail cell. And it is here we've come to the path, and on that path we find our third point. So if this is all true, Heath, how can we be prepared, equipped, for this level of resistance. In conversation after conversation after conversation, I've I begun to see that we don't think that we're actually empowered in this. We know, okay, in Christ, yep, choose Christ, not death. We get that. It's almost like we're blind to it. We, we functionally leave adjacent, kind of beside the raw power that Jesus brings and gives. We dabble our toes in it, we read about it, but pragmatically, we aren't necessitated by it until it's too late. You see, as a result, we set up camp on the side of the road and we think that that's the best it gets. So my experience, there's only one thing that we really have to do this morning. And it takes a step of faith. It takes obedience. Our resistance movement this morning begins in the courage to say out loud, The only thing that really matters is to live in Christ instead of death. Stringfellow says, "The, the vocation of a baptized person is a simple thing. It is to live from day to day, whatever the day brings, in this extraordinary unity in Christ. It is this reconciliation with all people and all things in this knowledge that death has no more power. In this truth of resurrection, it does not really matter exactly what a Christian does from day to day. What matters is whatever one does is done in the honor of the one's own life, given to one by God and restored to one in Christ and in the honor of life into which all humans and all things are called. That is this, if we are to live Truly humanly amidst the fall, in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our hope is in a resurrected Jesus Christ. Our power is to live humanly in his resurrection. It doesn't matter whether it's school pickups, the regular work grind at the office, or at the job site, our vocation as everyday normal pilgrims is to live our lives saying no to the power of Babylon and death. And yes, to life empowered in the resurrected Jesus. That's it. Now, practically, though, it means a couple of things. So, firstly, we need to be people known for our fidelity to the Word of God. And secondly, we need to be people known as people weirdly empowered by His Spirit. Probably not what you were expecting me to say there, was it? In Acts chapter 2, I don't have a slide for this, but I I just threw it in here. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus is resurrected. The power of the Holy Spirit comes. Peter preaches. There's 3,000 people that come to faith. And then you see this little snippet of what it means to be a pilgrim on the road. And in Acts chapter 2, 42 and 43, it says, And they, all of these new believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The early church were devoted to the Word, the Apostles' teaching, and they were empowered by the Spirit. Word and the Spirit. That's, you know, that's a hard thing for me. I'm like, my friends tease me that I'm like weirdly charismatic colorblind. I don't see it. But this is true. In a world where Babylon compels me, where where Babylon forces me to assert this economy of death, my autonomy over the text, I need to flip the narrative and live in life and actually state... These words, in the face of death, live humanly. In the middle of chaos, celebrate the word. Amidst battle, speak the truth. Confront the noise and verbiage and falsehood of death with the truth and potency and efficacy of the word of God. Know the word, teach the word, nurture the word, preach the word, define the word, incarnate the word, do the word, Live the word, you get it. And more than that, in the word of God, expose death and all death's works and wiles. Rebuke lies, cast out demons, exercise and cleanse the possessed. Raise those who are dead in mind and in conscience. What would happen, Christ City, if we actually did this? If we lived... If we breathe, if we did everyday normal things in the face of death, empowered by the Word, the resurrected Jesus. This is a fist in the air in the land of hypocrisy, the empire of death. We are called to be in the Word of God, as is everyone else to the vocation of being human, to changing the lives through Jesus, nothing more, nothing less. We have the power of the word. And our resistance, our resistance movements begins in this power by the resurrected Jesus lived out daily, normally, through everyday Christians. It's what the early church did and they changed the world. It's the same word that compels us today. So lastly, the second way to live humanly amidst the fall (laughs) is to be empowered by his spirit. I'll be honest, I I have an uncomfortable history with this idea of gifts of the spirit and being empowered by the spirit. But some while ago, I was on the bus and I was going through the downtown east side on the bus, and I'm on a trolley bus, you know, the ones that have the—they're attached to the power source, right? And it's going down, and there was something happening, and the bus had to make a go around something, move around something, and all of a sudden, we became disconnected. The bus became dis- disconnected from the power source, and all of us like. Beep, beep everybody with their hearing aids are turning them down and this old guy's like what's going on there and everybody's panicking and all of a sudden you know, and so the bus driver stops the bus opens the door, gets out, puts on his hard hat and safety vest and he walks to the back <laughs> attaches the bus back onto the power and the alarms go off and Bob's our uncle and then we kept going it's a simple thing the bus needs to be connected to the power source to run, you can't run on battery alone for very long Imagine Christ city. What would it look like? What would it look like for me personally? What would it look like for you sitting here this morning? What would it look like for our church and our neighborhood if we were actually attached to the power lines? Now, if you're calling yourself a Christian this morning, this, I'm talking to you right here and right now. Do you know that the Holy Spirit works in you and through you? Do you know that? Do you even know? Do you know what God has gifted you with? Do you know what a gift you have? Do you know? Do you know? If you don't, ask God. He will tell you. He's probably banging you on the back of the head with a two-by-four to let you know anyway. So so just make yourself available to go, oh, that's it. I get it. Because that's me. I'm talking about personal experience here. So I'm going to let you in on a little bit of secret. I've been test driving a spiritual gift that's weird. I have people's Names pop into my mind, and I send them a text message. And nine times out of ten, that person is in a crisis, and they go, holy moly, Heath, how did you know? How did you know? So a f- couple weeks ago, I found myself in Salmon Arm, and I... Uh, My cousin is an artist, and he's got an art studio, but uh, along the art studio, he's got a restaurant. And so I, I go to visit my cousin. I hadn't seen him in a bunch of years, and we're chilling. And he calls my other cousin, and my other cousin comes, and then he calls a bunch more friends. And before I know it, we have 30 people in this restaurant, and I find myself telling stories. Yeah, big surprise, right? So here I've got this whole crowd, and I felt the nudge to shift from crazy stories about my friends to how the Holy Spirit works in my heart to interact with my friends. And I told story after story after story of people's lives being changed, of stories of where I interacted, where the Holy Spirit talked to me and I interacted. This is weird for me. Remember, I'm charismatically colorblind, right? And then a group of 30, this lady raises her hand, and she says, Are you a medium? I'm like, what? She's like, you clearly have a connection to some God spirit, I don't know what. Are you a medium? And I say, no. And I begin to tell her of all that God uses me somehow in this way to show others that he loves them. And then I ask this lady, has God ever shown you how he loves you. And she was kind of taken aback. I said, he's using me right now to tell you that. Christ City, God has these gifts of power to give to you. Yeah, I'm weird. I know I'm weird. But I shouldn't be the only weird one in the room here. Ask God what your gifts are. Then operate in them in confidence, knowing it's going to go down a weird trail. It's going to be weird. I want this church to be as weird as me, not because I'm just naturally weird, but because the Holy Spirit is operating in us so profoundly that miracles happen and our neighborhood will be filled with awe. That's my prayer. So have you ever wondered why the gifts are there? Like, like, I don't know, as a kid in my, like, you know, knowledge based kind of teaching background. It's like, I was like, what the heck are the gifts for? Like these are just strange. These gifts are here for us as a direct show of power. A power of Jesus's his visible life, his 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 sign of protest in the face of death. The gifts are a fist in the air to say, death, you have lost. That's what the gifts are for in this world. That's why Paul spends so much time talking about the edification of the body in our gifts. And so it's, we are a community of life on the road of death. That's what the gifts are for. So if you've ever wondered, that's what they're for. The gifts are a visible proclamation that says to death, ha ha, sucker, you can't kill me. That's what the gifts are for. So I know I'm weird, but please be ordinarily weird with me. Take my hand this morning. Hear my call to action. Live a life of resistance. Together, let's walk. Let's walk on the way to Zion, the celestial city. And we can do that with the voice of Jesus in our heads saying, in this world you will have tribulation, Christ city but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Lord, we confess the times when we just don't know what to do with your power and it scares us and it's freaky. Lord, we we sometimes think that I can't even start on this road. So Lord, would you forgive us in our inactivity? Would you forgive us in our unbelief? Would you change us, make us new? And by your son, would you empower us? And, and would we embody your words this morning that, that you have overcome the world? So Lord, I pray that you would be with us this morning in our conversations, everything that we do, that that our lives would actually be changed and Hasting Sunrise would be a different place because your spirit is here operating in us, ordinary people, doing, living, incarnating the word and operating in your power. And this by your son, Jesus, who is your right hand. Lord, I pray this, amen.